Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. Are we we rolling? (laughs) NSL Double Talk featuring Eve Rodsky and Pam Stone. Their topic today is women reimagining the division between work and home. In Eve Rodsky's first book, Fair Play, she uses her Harvard Law School training and years of organizational management experience to create a life management system to help couples both rebalance all the work it takes to run a home and reimagine their relationship, time, and purpose. Eve was born and raised by a single mom in New York City and now lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their three children. She received her BA in economics and anthropology from the University of Michigan, and as mentioned, received her law degree from Harvard. Pam Stone is a professor of sociology at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She has contributed articles to numerous books and journals on such topics as gender inequality in employment, occupational classification and measurement, job segregation, pay equity, and the work-family interface, as well as lectured, consulted, and provided expert testimony about these issues. Her book, Opting Out, Why Women Really Quit Careers and Head Home has been featured on NBC's Today and Weekend Today, CBS's Evening News with Katie Couric, and ABC World News Tonight, among other TV and radio appearances. She has also co-authored Opting Back In, What Really Happens When Mother Goes Back to Work, which follows the lives of the women interviewed for Opting Out. Pamela is a graduate of Duke University and received her PhD from John Hopkins University. We are so excited to welcome Eve and Pam to NSL Double Talk. Hi, Pam. I'm so happy to be with you again. You were so generous with your time as I was figuring out what the gender division of labor was (laughs) on my quest to write Fair Play. But I wanted to start with a story that I write about in Fair Play and then uh, get your take on it. It was a story called The Text That Changed My Life, a text my husband sent me right after my second son, Ben, was born. And it said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And I remember that day when I got that text and I was sitting, uh, you can picture the scene, I was sitting on the side of the road. Um, I had a breast pump and a diaper bag on my passenger seat. I had gifts for a newborn baby to return in the back of, back of the car. I had a client contract because of a lawyer by trade on my, my lap as I was racing to get my older son, Zach, who was about three at the time, at his toddler transition program. And then I get this text from my husband. And even though you know I'd already been texting and driving, um, I thought maybe I would get into an accident. So I pulled over and I just started sobbing. As I was sitting there sobbing, I was thinking, wow, how did I used to be able to manage employee teams? And now I apparently can't even manage a grocery list. And more importantly, how did I become the default, or as I call in fair play, the she-fault for literally every single household in childcare tasks for my family? It wasn't supposed to happen to me, Pam, right? right? You know my mom. She's a professor. She's a single mom. I vowed it wasn't going to happen to me. I'd do differently than she did it because she struggled a lot. And I'm a Harvard-trained lawyer. I'm literally trained to use my voice and to communicate. So how did this happen to me? 
<laughs> well, you know, I, I read the book and I read that episode and it, it, it resonated on so many fronts. First, it resonated personally because we've all had those moments. I mean, I, my kids are now in their early 30s, so I'm t- talking about doing this you know, earlier stage than you, but that moment where you just feel like I'm overwhelmed and mm-hmm. I need help. Uh, and I found that the roughest patch in my, in my sort of married life, in fact, was having the young kids and, and trying to pursue my career. So I think those are real issues. Um, how did it happen to you? Every woman I interviewed for my book, Opting Out, said to me, I never thought you'd be talking to me as a stay-at-home right. mom. Nobody ever expected that was not their life trajectory. This was not why they had opted out. You're saying they didn't opt out from intention. They did not right. opt out from right. intention. I mean, one of the things that, you know, my book's called Opting Out, question mark. Mm. Uh, because I really challenge the prevailing understanding that this is a choice that women prefer to be at home. I'm going to cry because that, that was the most profound insight. I feel very emotional because that question mark, that one piece of punctuation was very impactful to right, me. Right, right. And it's not all about choice. And that was a big part of my book is that women weren't making choices in the way that they are typically construed to be making a choice. I think for most women, the, when we talk about work, the, women need to work. They have to work. We know the statistics that you know women contribute a huge amount to household income when they have a partner, but many single heads of household are sole, sole support, you know, as your mother was, for example. Yeah. So I think what happened is that women find themselves here uh, by sheafold, as you say, because the world of work has completely not changed to accommodate the reality of working moms. And the real, other reality, which unfortunately is the case, and you talk a lot about this, is that women still do bear the, the brunt and take up the, the greatest share of child care and, and oversight. And we know that's mental labor. That's not just the physical labor. It's the planning. It's the plotting. It's the making sure everything's yes, covered. Yes, yes. The cognitive labor is according to Harvard. Right. So I think that what women find is that there literally are not enough hours in the day. And that uh, being the responsible woman they are and wanting to you know, raise their kids and loving their kids and wanting to do best by their kids. What we've also seen, by the way, is that there's a speed up on the kids' front. This, is that because of social media, you think? I think it's before social media. Mm-hmm. I think it, frankly, harks back to the fact that we're really in a sort of uh, global economic crunch that uh, life is getting tighter and faster and more right. competitive. And right. people are running as fast as they can to hold on to jobs. Even people who are privileged professionals feel there's in- economic insecurity at any turn, right, at any moment. So we're racing up against the clock. I think always. we're racing yes. against the clock. And I think that the parents, and especially read mothers here, are the ones who are really given the responsibility to make sure that their kids succeed and that their kids prosper and that their kids at least stay in the same place that they were in. And certainly not that they're downwardly mobile. Or they're, they're given the responsibility that, that they fail or don't. Because I always I thought it was interesting that all the people that got jailed for this uh, college admissions scandal yeah. were women. Right, right. It just we showed know, me that of course. it's because we're in charge of school transitions, right? Because and we do everything. Why is there no men in jail right, for, this right. party, exactly. for this crisis? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think we're here really be, because the workplace has really not changed. There's a lot of talk out there, but and maybe now we're starting to see some action, but there's too much talk and not enough real action to reconfigure work. Yes. Women wanted to go back to work. They're smart. They want to get their job done. They want to do it well. And they come up with these great plans. And the number of times they were shot down was always shocking to me. I'd be hearing women with resumes like yours, you know, Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, being told, sorry. So I was interested when I reread your book, Eve, that... Um, uh, you'd actually tried to go back to work and you'd proposed several different schemes to your employer to make that possible. Correct. <laughs> I asked to work full-time, but one day from home. 
maybe another alternate would be 80% of my salary, even though, you know, technically I would be working full time because you always, if you're a responsive person, you're a responsive person. But I said, pay me 80% and I'll work four days a week. Ironically, my direct manager was somebody who worked from home one day a week. And when I asked her for this, uh, this plan, um, she said that she was worried that if we brought it up with a company, that it would flag that she's doing that and she didn't want to bring attention to her own situation. Right, right. Um, right. So not having that type of ally was really hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me just jump in to say yes. a couple of things there. First of all, you had a plan. You were I did. proactive. Yes. Right? <laughs> it was a very simple, minimally disruptive routine that you were talking about. And these are the kinds of things I heard from women. They weren't looking to go down to 20 hours per week. They weren't looking to come in one day a week, work off-site all the time. They were looking exactly for the kinds of things you were looking for. So number one was that you asked. Number two was a response, which is uh, a lot of women heard a similar kind of thing. Usually it wasn't from a boss who was a woman. It was usually from a boss who was a man. Yes. And he said, if I give it to you, I'll have to give it to everyone. Mm-hmm. So there was that fear that there was a kind of contamination factor going on. <laughs> so this is what all the literature and all the research shows, that most women wouldn't be approved for these kinds of arrangements. But when they were approved, they were completely unsustainable mm-hmm. because of the kinds of things we're talking about. Uh, no policies, no support by HR, no support by your direct manager. What I really want is to walk out of the, to the office at 2 o'clock and say I can pick up my child uh, from school and not feel shame about it. Right. There was a Wall Street Journal um, column who just retired, who did the work and family beat. And she said that she felt every single time she was leaving that she was sneaking out and hiding. What is going on where we do not acknowledge that there's a home life for workers in this country? I wish I had the answer to that. I don't have the answer to that. I mean, clearly that is the case. We don't acknowledge that. We put a major firewall between work and life and work and family. You mentioned that every time you go out, you feel guilty. There's research showing that when men leave, people assume they're going to leave for work reasons. When women leave, whatever the reason, they, th- they assume they're going to leave for family reasons. So we just have this deep, deep typing of women with family and men with work. Is and that why we lose 5 to 10% of our wages for every child? Yes, yes. And again, another piece of news is that women get penalized, men get a premium. Okay, let's so, let's talk about let's I mean, talk about like, this. So when, let's talk about when, when a baby comes fathers, into the world, right? When men baby. become fathers, they get more money because right. the thinking is they're seen as stable, they're seen as family men, they're seen as okay, onward and upward, and we need to pay them a family wage kind of thing, and that doesn't apply to women. Women are still thought of as this: their earnings are secondary, their earnings are pin money. Et cetera, et cetera. Even though over no, 70% of, of us in the workforce now. This is one of the biggest cultural and institutional lags I've ever seen. Can you say that again? Because I think that's the most important thing for your any listener to understand in terms of how culture is evolving right now. The workplace has really not kept up. It's, it's huge to the male breadwinner, wife at home model, uh, on, on and on and on. And on and on and And it's on. so dysfunctional. It's so dysfunctional. And so I think, you know, it was interesting for me, and I'll tell you a quick story about, I call it the case of the Edward Glitter Hands. This is um, a couple that I interviewed um, last winter. I'll call them Julie and Ed for privacy. So Julie um, was a friend, and I had interviewed her for Fair Play and her husband. Ed was the kind of man who said things like, I'm the CEO outside the home, 
and my wife's a CEO inside the home, like throw up, you know? <laughs> I just wanna, yeah, I, but, I heard that a lot. A yeah. lot, a lot. I mean, okay, okay, whatever. Um, so, uh, but he's a nice guy. And so Julie contacts me and she says, you know, I understand the premise of fair play, which is basically this idea that it's a metaphorical card game, right? It's based on a hundred task cards that you hold for your family. And when you hold it, you hold it like you would at work with the full conception, planning, and execution. And she said to me, you know, I'm at my breaking point. She was someone who had opted out, but she was still working in a part-time role, but not the role she expected, like you said, the surprise. She was planning her kids' travel. This is fall, uh, winter of 2018, getting the ornaments for the Christmas tree, still taking the kids to school, and she was breaking down because her mother just entered the hospital for a neurodegenerative disease. And she's like, I, I, I'm at my wit's end um, and I want to try fair play. So I said, well, that's a terrible time to try anything new, uh, any new system, because, you know, you're sort of a time of crisis. But her idea was that she was at a breaking point. And so I said, well, what's breaking you? So she tells me it's her second son Brody's second grade Secret Santa project say that five times fast. Because, you know, schools are really helpful, institutions are really helpful by making us do things from scratch. This was something that had to be done from scratch. And so she wanted Ed's help with this project. So I said, well, yeah, have him take ownership of this project, the second grade Secret Santa project, and give him the full ownership of it, the conception, planning, and execution, give it to Brody. And what she said to me was that they had no language for that. They had no vocabulary. She wouldn't even know how to do that. And then she goes on this whole um, very anxious rundown about why her husband, Ed, who's a very competent CEO, could not do the project because he would do it wrong. She'd have to remind him because it would be a sock puppet because, uh, you know, she wants to just give him a list of things to buy and the ownership doesn't work for it. It's not their habit. And so I said to her, just back up, back up for a second. Why? Because fair play ultimately is about what is your why. It's asking people to have new conversations about the home. So I said to her, why do you care about this project? It's obviously triggering something for you. And she says, well, it's the school's signature project for second grade. It was meaningful to her. And she said, because they were supposed to teach the kids that, you know, you can be as excited as opening a homemade gift from a friend as you would be from a, you know, $100 Nerf gun. That was an important part of it. And then she says, I also care because the little girl who my son drew in the Secret Santa hat um, is somebody who walks around the yard, and I notice that she's sort of waiting for the bell to ring in this you know, public school in New Jersey, and no one's talking to her. And it would be really nice and foster some empathy in my son if we built a, a nice project for her that sort of said, welcome to the school. And so I said, just say that to Ed. <laughs> Instead of all the reasons why he can't do it, just communicate your why when emotion is low and cognition is high. So she does. And Ed tells me he began Googling secret Santa projects for little girls with his son Brody. So that's this idea of conception, right? What we call in the business world conception. And then they chose a popsicle stick jewelry box. They write down everything they need for this jewelry box. So Ed's giving me these details. They wanted colored popsicle sticks, a glue, glitter, a knob for the box, you know, because Brody didn't want the little girl to need two hands to open her jewelry box, so they were going to get a knob. And that's, again, an organizational management fair play language, what we call the planning stage, which men, you know, as we know, often don't engage in or the conception. So Ed's doing it. And then he tells me that he discovered this really cool store called Michael's. And, you know, it's really, it wasn't that hard because, you know, we just went to the store and we were able to pick up everything we need. But what was so powerful was that... 
then they go home and they start building this jewelry box. But what was powerful was Julie chimes in and she says to me, her life changed that day. And she's not a very hyperbolic person, but I said, well, what changed for you? And she said, it was seeing the glitter on Ed's hands. And so I said to her, well, why was that so meaningful for you? And she said to me, because it was literally the first time where she felt like he was in it with her. And so I got to follow up with Ed about um, this idea of how do you bring glitter? When you bring fundamental change in your home, when you have some empathy for the value of care, how can that reverberate in the workplace? And so besides flexibility, we talked about pay equity and we talked about leave. And I wonder um, how you think we're doing on any of those, of those policies today. How can men help us, though? <laughs> Fair play is really about taking that agency in your own home, you know, building the value of jewelry boxes, modeling the behavior, right. saying to your employees, I'm leaving early to go build that jewelry box and take my child to the pediatrician. But what do you think as a whole corporations or men can do as our allies? Well, let's face it, most of the bosses are men. So right. the majority of CEOs have at-home wives. So the model that they're living and used to is the model that we're talking about being such a stranglehold and such a problem for women. So they're not necessarily the obvious change makers. It does seem to me that we are seeing some younger, up-and-coming you know, CEO types who are saying, I think it's Salesforce that uh, has a four-day work week, for example. I think we're seeing younger generations mm-hmm. of men being more woke on these issues and trying in their own companies to model different behavior. You do think modeling is important? Uh, model is incredibly important yeah. because that's yes. what gives permission. I mean, everybody yes. looks to the CEO. People who are heads of organizations don't understand how powerful they are in terms of modeling because everybody looks to them for guidance. And what they do is what you know they take is what, they sh- what needs to be done. Certainly in a corporate world, we're talking about trying to get ahead. And, you know, there's this great statistic. There are more men CEOs named something like John or William in Fortune 500 <laughs> than there are women, right? I mean, there are very few women at the top. Women tend to top out in middle management, so they're not getting in the position that they need to be in to really change work culture. There are good things happening, but there are also some not-so-good things happening. Look at the Silicon Valley. Look at the tech world. Is that a model of work that we want? They work nonstop mm-hmm, all the time. Right. Forget the kombucha. Forget the <laughs> ping-pong table. Give me a reasonable way to work. We're seeing more attention given to this, the sheer toxicity of these long, extreme work hours. We have people killing themselves. Yes, you know, it's, yes. it's tragic. This is not only impacting women. So I'm hoping that the larger issue of these extreme work hours will, will be perceived as a broader issue, not just a work-life issue, because regrettably, when it's just a work-life issue, it's just a women's issue. Correct. And I hate we, the word we, work-life balance. Go down, Retire that. We go down that whole road that doesn't give women their due. So, um, yeah, I think things are happening, but we need more. And I think that to see the Me Too movement, to see the attention being given to these issues, there's been a real renaissance, in certainly in pay equity issues. I mean, pay equity, I can tell you, it was dead as a doornail for a very, very long time. Wow. Are we and in fourth wave of feminism, do you think? I think we might be in the fourth wave of feminism. Yeah. You know? Grassroots you know, activism and social media really making some, for some changes and bringing these issues to the fore. But, yeah, I think that this is a hopeful moment. So you feel hopeful? As hopeful as I can feel. I think we're we're poised, yeah. One CEO said to me that he thought a good way to to add to this conversation was to retire work-life balance as a a term and just to say that this is work. When companies implement and have more supportive work-life policies, they do see a lot of productivity increases. They see greater retention. They see greater company loyalty, organizational commitment. So for those companies who do implement meaningful change, they do see a real payback, a literal bottom line payback. 
in terms yes. of you know. yes, they do. So there's you know there's a lot of reasons to do it, but the, again, why isn't it more widespread? Again, it's so hard to change the culture. It just seems to be so difficult to change the culture. Well, that's why you're my role model. You're one of the first people I came to because you've been talking about this you know, earlier than anybody. And I do want to say something about why I think 50-50 is the wrong equation, why I think that that's held us back for a lot of years. Um, I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal about this, so it can feel a little provocative. I think 50-50 has held us back for a really long time. And the reason why is because, A, what does that even mean? It's sort of the scorekeeping term. Um, And every situation looks different. But what is non-negotiable to me and what I found was that the bottom line when I went out to interview more than 500 men and women for Fair Play, my initial finding was, uh, you know, the smallest details were causing the biggest problems. You know, men were being locked out over a glue stick because he forgot to bring home a glue stick. Uh, he forgot. He got a text in the middle of his day. Um, women are super resentful over things like off-season blueberries, um, like me crying on the side of the road over blueberries. But what it really came down to for me was this idea that men, women in society view men's time as finite like diamonds, and women's time is infinite, like sand. And obviously we know that from pay equity, right? An hour of our time is not as valuable as a man's time. And I think the hardest thing for me was that women were the worst purveyors of these what I call toxic time messages. Women all over this country were saying to me, well, of course I'm the one who's the pediatrician's contact, the one to pick up my kids to school, the one who opted out of the workplace because my husband made more money than me. Well, that's a terrible argument for women because, as you said, mm-hmm. you've been fighting for pay equity for forever. And so if we always make that argument, well, my husband makes more money, so I should opt into his job or I should take on more of the unpaid labor, then we're going to be doing this for another 100 years. We're going to have 99 out of 100 men on the most innovative Forbes CEO list. And as Melinda Gates found in all the gender equity research now, is 257 years till we get to gender right. equality. So right. this idea that just because... I may be in a more traditional role. My time is not as valuable or I should be doing more in the home. Yes, you may not be doing 50-50, but it doesn't mean that you have a siloed life. It doesn't mean that your husband doesn't get something from opting in to that. And then the other thing I was hearing a lot for how women devalue their own time um, was this idea that, and this was one of the drop the mic moments, many women made that decision to opt out over this. And I still hear it today in 2020. Um, well, um, the nanny would have cost as much as my salary. So it made sense for me to, to stay home. But you had the most beautiful retort to that. That was just, of course, it was one of the most aha, eye-opening moments for me. Do you remember what that was? No. Well, it was about <laughs> how should you be viewing childcare when yeah. women say, well, right. I would just be replacing the nanny, my salary, my yeah. salary would just pay for her. Well, it's uh, something to the effect that, well, it's her husband's, you know, it's a father's kid too. Yes, right? yes, yeah. yes. I think for me, it was your realization when you said that calculation is completely wrong because it should be... 50% yeah. of wages. Women constantly feel that they have to take all the childcare costs on. And again, starting from a, a, a lower base than men to begin with, it's a losing proposition. My book really comes out saying, if I have to put my bet somewhere, where do I want to see policy change? And I want to see it in the workplace. You're giving people a real game plan because, I mean, as I said, this was the hardest period of my life, working this through with my really wonderful husband. We all have great... Yes, I mean, really was yes. very egalitarian. We were really trying, but it's just so damn hard. But at any rate, the the point is, if you go by earnings and you go by salary, women will always lose. There are so many things. They go into lower-paying occupations. Um, They are typically for about four years younger than their husbands, which means their husband has more momentum in his career, takes the lead. There's all sorts of reasons that women end up deferring to men. And if you do everything on a dollars and cents calculation of wages, 
it'll never change. Right, because so that's why always it's time. Be, and that's why when you talk about time. Yes, you know, value and, time is 24, 24 hours. hours. And everybody's hour is equal to everybody, you know, men's, husbands to wives, everybody's is equal. And I thought that is really, really important because, you know, it is all about time, whether we're talking about time in the workplace or time at home. In fact, I end my newest book, this Opting Back In, which I wrote with Meg Lovejoy. I end that by saying, you know, it's about time. And I know. time's oh, I up, love. hashtag time's up. I, I got so very teary when I, I when I read that, your second that book. I think we really have to focus on time a lot, and I think that's what your your scheme does. I love it. So let's talk about the positive. Let's end on the positive. So even my most uh, you know conservative, I'm the CEO outside the home. She's the CEO of the home. Uh, man, Ed is the one coming to me to have meaningful discussions about what he can model in the workplace. And tell me uh, one important finding that uh, opting in showed you, something that you feel positive about. Opting in being your second book that just came out. Um, congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, what do I feel positive about? Unfortunately, there's a lot of things that haven't changed. Women are still finding their choices when they return to work constrained in terms of flexibility and hours, and that's still an issue. But I guess what I think is probably some bright side is that this group of women, and there is a sizable group among a certain socioeconomic class, are certainly being recognized. They exist now, and they never existed before. So there are programs. Most big companies have, they call them things like Encore, returnships, things like that. Um, most companies nowadays are really trying to target, they recognize this is a great, you know, talented, productive group that is underutilized. And we want you back and in the workforce. And we want you back in the workforce. I wish sometimes it would be a little bit more flexible about how they do that. Oftentimes they require women to come back full-time, and women often aren't ready to do that. But right. it's a good thing, and it's a good thing to see these women being recognized and the, that this is both a problem and there's a solution to it. I don't want companies, however, to give up, and I don't think they are. I think companies recognize that they've got to get a handle on hours, and they've got to get a, a handle on flexibility if they're going to keep and retain highly talented women across through the middle management into upper, upper levels of management. So I think there is more and more happening. I always want to see you know, the rhetoric match the, you know, the reality rather yeah. match the rhetoric, but I still think there's a lot more happening. And for men, I would say, I challenge you to see if you believe this, that an hour holding your child's hand in the pediatrician's office is as valuable to society as an hour in the boardroom. And I hope we get to a place where um, all men say yes. People talk about Second Shift, but Opting Out is a book that to me is in that category of you being a professor and a sociologist on the forefront of this issue since the 80s and 90s. And you are a role model to me. Uh, thank you for caring about these issues um, in a place where societal change, like you said, is going really slowly. We need voices like yours. So thank you for all the work you've done on behalf of women in our generation. Well, thank you. And thank you for being the change we need to be, because this book, I think, is going to make a real difference. Thank you. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.